Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Foss Corporation, LLC. Welcome to the Mansion on the Hill. This is the home of Terry's Serious Moments. Stories of oddness, of weirdness of nature gone strange. This is season four. We thank you for coming along for the ride. Hope you enjoy it. Do not touch your dial. Touch your dial. We have control of your radio. Of your radio. Of your radio. You are listening to Terry's mysterious, mysterious moments. Hello, everybody. Here's our new story for the week. Up the close and down the stair, bout and bin with Burke and Hare. Burke's the butcher. Hare's the thief. Knox, the boy that buys the beef. It's a 19th century Edinburgh rhyme. In the early 19th century, medical research, particularly in the area of anatomy, was severely lacking. The supply of bodies for dissection was slim, according to laws. Edinburgh, of course, was the home of medical education and many doctors of the period were trained and educated there. But the lack of bodies made it difficult for everyone to get hands-on experience, as it were. Thus arose the resurrection. The resurrection. The resurrection. These were men who supplied bodies by way of grave robbing. Did the doctors know where the bodies came from? Some say yes. Some say no. Some say, no way, with a nudge from the elbow and a knowing wink. The old nudge, nudge, wink, wink kind of thing. Burke and Hare took the supplying of bodies to a new level. They simply murdered their victims by smothering, thus providing relatively fresh and undamaged corpses. The method was given the name burking. It was accomplished by sitting on the victim's chest and holding one's hand over the mouth and nose, keeping the victim from breathing. This would leave no signs of violence on the victim. The Burke and Hare murders were a series of 16 killings committed over a period of about 10 months in 1828 Edinburgh, Scotland. They were undertaken, pardon the pun, by William Burke and William Hare, who sold the corpses to a Dr. Robert Knox for a dissection in his anatomy lectures. Edinburgh was a leading European center of anatomical study in the early 19th century, at a time when the demand for cadavers 
led to a shortfall in legal supply. Scottish law required that corpses used for medical research should only come from those who had died in prison, were suicide victims, or from foundlings and orphans. The shortage of the corpses led to an increase in body snatching by what were known as resurrection men. Measures to ensure graves were left undisturbed, such as the use of mort safes, exacerbated the shortage. A mort safe is basically a cement and metal cage placed over and around a grave. When a lodger in Hare's house, he ran a boarding house, died owing rent, Hare was upset and turned to his friend Burke for an answer. They decided to sell the body to Knox. They received what was, for them, at the time, the generous sum of seven pounds ten shillings. A little over two months later, when Hare was concerned that a lodger suffering from fever would deter others from staying in the house, he and Burke murdered her and sold the body to Knox. The men continued their murder spree, probably with the knowledge of their wives. Burke and Hare's actions were uncovered after other lodgers discovered their last victim, a Margaret Doherty, and contacted the police. A forensic examination of Doherty's body indicated she had probably been suffocated, but this could not be proven. Although the police suspected Burke and Hare of other murders, there was no evidence on which they could take action. An offer was put to Hare granting immunity from prosecution if he turned King's evidence. He provided the details of Doherty's murder and confessed to all 16 deaths. Formal charges were made against Burke and his wife for three murders. At the subsequent trial, Burke was found guilty of one murder and sentenced to death. The case against his wife was found not proven. A Scottish legal verdict to acquit an individual but not declare them innocent. The trial began at 10 a.m. on Christmas Eve, 1828, before the High Court of Justiciary in Edinburgh's Parliament House. The case was heard by the Lord Justice Clerk, David Boyle, supported by the Lords Meadowbank, Pitnelly, and Mackenzie. The court was full shortly after the doors were opened at 9 a.m., and a large crowd gathered outside Parliament House. 300 constables were on duty, while infantry and cavalry were on standby as a further precaution against disturbances. The case ran through the day and night to the following morning. At that time, Christmas was not a legal holiday. Rosner states that even a formal postponement of the case for dinner could have raised questions about the validity of the trial. When the charges were read out, the two defense counsels objected to McDougall and Burke being tried together. McDougal was Burke's wife. James Moncrief, Burke's defense lawyer, protested that his client was charged with three unconnected murders committed each at a different time and in a different place in a trial with another defendant who was not even alleged to have had any concern with two of the offenses of which he is accused. Several hours were spent on legal arguments about the objection. The judge decided that to declare a fair trial, 
the indictment should be split into two separate charges for the three murders. He gave the choice as to which should be heard first. It was opted for the murder of Doherty, given they had the corpse and the strongest evidence. In the early afternoon, Burke and McDougall pleaded not guilty to the murder of Doherty. The first witnesses were then called from a list of 55 that included Hare and Knox. Not all the witnesses on the list were called, and Knox, with three of his assistants, avoided being questioned in court. One of Knox's assistants, David Patterson, who had been the main person Burke and Hare had dealt with at Knox's surgery, was called and confirmed the pair had supplied the doctor with several corpses. In the early evening, Hare took the stand to give evidence. Under cross-examination about the murder of Doherty, Hare claimed Burke had been the sole murderer and MacDougall had twice been involved by bringing Doherty back to the house after she had run out. Hare stated that he had assisted Burke in the delivery of the body to Knox. Although he was asked about other murders, he was not obliged to answer the questions as the charge related only to the death of Doherty. After Hare's questioning, his wife entered the witness box carrying their baby daughter who was suffering from whooping cough. Margaret used the child's coughing fits as a way to give herself thinking time for some of the questions and told the court that she had a very poor memory and could not remember many of the events. The final prosecution witnesses were the two doctors, Black and Christensen. Both said they suspected foul play, but that there was no forensic evidence to support the suggestion of murder. There were no witnesses called for the defense, although the pre-trial declarations by Burke and McDougall were read out in their place. The prosecution summed up their case, after which, at 3 a.m. Christmas morning, Burke's defense lawyer began his final statement, which lasted for two hours. McDougall's defense lawyer began his address to the jury on his client's behalf at 5 a.m. Boyle then gave his summing up, directing the jury to accept the arguments of the prosecution. The jury retired to consider its verdict at 8.30 a.m. on Christmas Day and returned 50 minutes later. It delivered a guilty verdict against Burke for the murder of Doherty. The same charge against McDougal they found not proven. As he passed the death sentence against Burke, Boyle told him, your body should be publicly dissected and anatomized, and I trust that if it is ever customary to preserve skeletons, yours will be preserved in order that posterity may keep in remembrance your atrocious crimes. Burke was hanged shortly afterwards. His corpse was dissected, and his skeleton was displayed at the Anatomical Museum of Edinburgh Medical School where it remains. There exists a book that was bound in Burke's tanned skin and a letter allegedly written in his blood. The murders raised public awareness of the need for bodies for medical research and contributed to passing the Anatomy Act of 1832. Funny that out of 16 murders they'd only convict him of one but of course you can't hang a person 16 times. That would be overkill. But the story of Burke and Hare is very interesting in that they found a way to 
supply bodies without grave robbing. It was a do-it-yourself thing, I guess. Little Mary Fagan, she left her home one day. She went to the pencil factory just to get her pay. She left her home at 11, kissed her mother goodbye. Not one time did the poor child think that she was a-going to die. That was a song that was made popular by the death of a young girl in Georgia. Her name was Mary Fagan. She was born on June 1st, 1899, into an established Georgia family of tenant farmers. It doesn't mean they were of high, high social ranking. They were just well-known and good-named people. Her father died before she was born, and shortly after Mary's birth, her mother, Frances Fagan, moved the family back to their hometown of Marietta, Georgia. They again relocated to East Point, Georgia, in southwest Atlanta, where Frances opened up a boarding house. Mary Fagan left school at age 10 to work part-time in a textile mill. In 1912, after her mother married John William Coleman, the family moved into the city of Atlanta. That spring, Mary took a job with the National Pencil Company, where she earned 10 cents an hour operating a knurling machine. And that's the machine that inserted rubber erasers into the metal tips of pencils and worked 55 hours per week. She worked on the second floor of the factory in the metal room in a section called the tipping department, which was across the hallway from Leo Frank's office, the manager. On April 21, 1913, Fagan was laid off due to a shortage of brass sheet metal. Around noon on April 26th, she went to the factory to claim her pay of $1.20. The next day, shortly before 3 a.m., the factory's night watchman, Newt Lee, went to the factory basement to use the colored toilet. After leaving the toilet, Lee discovered Fagan's body in the rear of the basement near an incinerator and called the police. Her dress was up around her waist and a strip from her petticoat had been torn off and wrapped around her neck. Her face was blackened and scratched and her head was bruised and battered. A seven foot long strip of quarter inch wrapping cord was tied into a loop around her neck buried a quarter inch deep showing that she had been strangled. Her underwear was still in place but stained with blood and torn open. Her skin was covered with ashes and dirt from the floor, initially making it appear to first responding officers that she and her assailant had struggled in the basement. A service ramp at the rear of the basement led to a sliding door that opened into an alley. The police found the door had been tampered with so it could be opened without unlocking it. Later examination found bloody fingerprints on the door as well as a metal pipe that had been used as a crowbar. Some evidence at the crime was improperly handled by the police investigators. A trail in the dirt, for instance, from the elevator shaft, along which police believed Fagan had been dragged, was trampled. The footprints were never identified. Two notes were found in a pile of rubbish by Fagan's head and became known as the murder notes. One said, he said he would, W-O-O-D, love me, land down play like the night witch did it, 
But that long, tall, black Negro did boy his slough. This is badly written at, at best. The other said, Ma'am, that Negro hired down here did this. I went to make water, and he pushed me down that hole. A long, tall, Negro black, that who it was, long, slim, tall Negro, I write while play with me. You know your favorite sparkling water, Bubbly? Well, guess what? It just got better because Bubbly is growing its family. That's right. Bubbly now has Bubbly Burst. Bubbly Burst is a sparkling water beverage with extra fruit flavor. An extra burst of fruit flavor for an extra burst of fun. There's zero sugar added. It's low calorie. It's the refreshing bubbles that you love in Bubbly, but... It's 1% juice. Each sip is filled with a flavorful refreshment that adds a burst of fun and happiness to your day. And just like choosing amongst your favorite child, it's impossible. There's so many good flavors. Peach mango, triple berry, cherry lemonade, watermelon lime, pineapple tangerine, and tropical punch. I can't choose a favorite, but don't take my word for it. Try it for yourself today. Find bubbly bursts in a store near you. Again, badly written. The phrase night witch, which was thought to meant night watch or night watchman, when the notes were initially read aloud, Lee, who was black, said, Boss, it sounds like they're trying to lay it on me. Lee was arrested that morning based on these notes and his apparent familiarity with the body. He stated that the girl was white. When the police, because of the filth and darkness in the basement, initially thought she was black. A trail leading back to the elevator suggested to police that the body had been moved by Lee. On Wednesday, April 30th, a coroner's inquest was held. Frank testified about his activities on Saturday and other witnesses produced corroboration. A young man said that Fagan had complained to him about Frank. Several former employees spoke of Frank flirting with other women. One said she was actually propositioned. The detectives admitted that they so far had obtained no conclusive evidence or clues in the baffling mystery. Lee and Frank were both ordered to be detained. In May, a detective named William J. Burns traveled to Atlanta to offer further assistance in the case. However, his Burns agency withdrew from the case later that month. C.W. Toby a detective from the Chicago affiliate who was assigned to the case said the agency, quote, came down here to investigate a murder case, not to engage in petty politic or politics. The agency quickly became disillusioned with the many societal implications of the case, most notably the notion that Frank was able to evade prosecution due to him being a rich Jew, buying off the police and paying for private detectives. The prosecution based much of its case on the testimony of Jim Conley, the factory's janitor, who is believed by many historians to be the actual murderer. After giving several versions of his testimony, on April 24, 1914, Conley was sentenced to a year in jail for being an accomplice after the fact to the murder of Mary Fagan. During the trial, the prosecution alleged bribery and witness tampering attempts by the Frank legal team. 
Meanwhile, the defense requested a mistrial because it believed the jurors had been intimidated by the animosity of the people inside and outside the courtroom. Motion was denied. Fearing for the safety of Frank and his lawyers in case of an acquittal, Roan and the defense agreed that neither Frank nor his defense attorneys would be present when the verdict was read. On August 25, 1913, after less than four hours of deliberation, the jury reached a unanimous guilty verdict convicting Frank of murder. On August 26, the day after the guilty verdict was reached by the jury, Judge Roan brought counsel into private chambers and sentenced Leo Frank to death by hanging with the date set October 10th. The defense team issued a public protest alleging that public opinion unconsciously influenced the jury to the prejudice of Frank. This argument was carried forward throughout the appeal process. Multiple appeals were denied. Governor John Slayton had been elected in 1912 and his term would end four days after Frank's scheduled execution. In 1913, before Fagan's murder, Slayton agreed to merge his law firm with that of Luther Rosser, who became Frank's lead attorney. Slayton was not directly involved in the original trial. On Monday, June 21, 1915, Slayton released the order to commute Frank's murder conviction to life imprisonment. Slayton's legal rationale was there was sufficient new evidence not available at the original trial to justify Frank's actions. After the commutation, popular Georgia politician Tom Watson attacked Slayton, often focusing on his partnership with Rosser as a conflict of interest. For Frank's protection, he was taken to the Milledgeville State Penitentiary in the middle of the night before the commutation was announced. The penitentiary was strongly garrisoned and newly bristling with arms and separated from Marietta by 150 miles of mostly unpaved roads. On July 17th, the New York Times reported that fellow inmate William Crean tried to kill Frank by slashing his throat with a 7-inch butcher knife, severing his jugular vein. The attacker told the authorities that he wanted to keep the other inmates safe from mob violence. Frank's presence was a disgrace to the prison, and he was sure he would be pardoned if he killed Frank. The June 21, 1915 commutation provoked Tom Watson into advocating Frank's lynching. He wrote in the Jeffersonian and Watson's magazine, This country has nothing to fear from its rural communities. Lynching law is a good sign. It shows that a sense of justice lives among the people. A group of prominent men organized themselves into the Knights of Mary Fagan and openly planned to kidnap Frank from prison. They consisted of 28 men with various skills. There was an electrician to cut the prison wires, Car mechanics were to keep the cars running, and there was a locksmith, a telephone man, a medic, a hangman, and a lay preacher. The ringleaders were well known locally, but were not named publicly until June 2000, when a local librarian posted a list on the web based on information compiled by Mary Fagan's great-niece, Mary Fagan Keene, who was born in 1953. The list included Joseph Mackey Brown, former governor of Georgia, Eugene Herbert Clay, former mayor of Marietta, 
and later president of the Georgia Senate, E.P. Dobbs, mayor of Marietta at the time, Moultrie McKinney Sessions, lawyer and banker, part of the Marietta delegation at Governor Slayton's clemency hearing, several current and former Cobb County sheriffs, and other individuals of various professions. On that afternoon of August 16th, the eight cars of the lynch mob left Marietta separately for Milledgeville. They arrived at the prison around 10 p.m., and the electrician cut the telephone wires, and members of the group drained the gas from the prison's automobiles. They handcuffed the warden, seized Frank, and drove away. The 175-mile trip took about seven hours at a top speed of 18 miles per hour through small towns on back roads. Lookouts in the towns telephoned ahead to the next town as soon as they saw the line of cars pass by. A site at Fry's Gin, two miles east of Marietta, had been prepared, complete with a rope and table supplied by former Sheriff William Fry. The New York Times reported that Frank was handcuffed his legs tied at the ankles, and that he was hanged from a branch of a tree at around 7 a.m., facing the direction of the house where Fagan had lived. Frank's supporters submitted a second application for pardon, asking the state only to recognize its culpability over his death. The board granted the pardon in 1986. Little late there, folks. It said, without attempting to address the question of guilt or innocence, and in recognition of the state's failure to protect the person of Leo M. Frank and thereby preserve his opportunity for continued legal appeal of his conviction, and in recognition of the state's failure to bring his killers to justice and as an effort to heal old wounds, the State Board of Pardons and Paroles, in compliance with its constitutional and statutory authority, hereby grants to Leo M. Frank a pardon. In response to the pardon, an editorial by Fred Grimm in the Miami Herald said, A salve for one of the South's most hateful, festering memories was finally applied. A salve, perhaps, but salves do not remove damage or injury. They simply mask the pain. This was Georgia in the 1910s. Racism ran rampant. That cannot be denied. But this may have been the only time when the only thing worse than being a black man in Georgia was being a Jewish man. Well, that's it for this week, folks. I want to remind you that you can find Aaron Hunter on the RPA app on Mondays doing listener stories with Real Paranormal Activity, the podcast. On Tuesdays, you can find Aaron Frail doing Aaron's Horror Shows, where he reviews movies, books, things he's written, and deals a lot with maybe the scarier aspect books and things. On Wednesday, you find me, Terry from Texas, with Terry's Mysterious Moments where we talk about just about anything. I don't stick to one particular genre of story, so we can have fun with it. Aaron has just recently added a new concept to our lineup with something called 
entertaining short films. But it's just it's just stories, little things. Uh, consider Twilight Zone kind of stories. In order to get the RPA app, you need to get on your app store, whether you have an Apple or an Android, it doesn't matter. Get to your app store and look for the RPA app, which is a black square with a blue eye in the middle of it. You shouldn't be able to miss it if you see it. You download that. You install it onto whatever device you like listening to your podcasts on. And you can use it to get directly to the shows that RPA has on it. You don't have to go looking for them. If you need to contact me for any reason, contact me at Terry's Mysterious Moments at gmail.com. That's all lowercase letters, no apostrophe on Terry's. And if you want to write to me on Facebook, you can catch me at Terry's Mysterious Moments Facebook page. Thanks for being here and listening to the show. We'll talk to you again later.